The Advent series is really focusing on the wise men. And the journey that they took, and Pastor Matthew last week did an excellent job of giving really a lot of backdrop. We're going to actually go back through the story a little bit. And we're going to get to the second gift that they offered to the Christ child. You know, years ago there was a billboard battle that took place in the Lincoln Tunnel. If you go into, or if you go through that tunnel, you might have actually seen this. If you went in on the New Jersey entrance, you would have seen a billboard that goes like this. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. That was paid for by the Atheist Society. But if you entered that tunnel from the New York end, you would have seen another billboard. The Catholics put it up and went like this. You know it's real. This season, celebrate Jesus. So you've got sort of competing billboards. And actually, it probably embodies what's here in this sanctuary right now. If you were to go to the Illinois State House right now, if you were to fly there tonight, and you were to go there Monday when it opens up again, you're going to see a nativity scene. It's all decorated out. You're going to see a menorah. And then you're going to see something called a snake-tivity. And what the snake-tivity is, is a black shiny box with an arm coming out of the top of it and an open palm. And on that palm is an apple and there's a snake intertwining about the, uh, the wrist. And on that black box is these words, knowledge is the greatest gift. And that was actually paid for and put up there by the Satanist Society. So you've got all of these different things. You know, you might be an atheist. You might be godless. You might say, no, there's no God. I don't know, maybe you're a Satanist if you are. Come talk to us, particularly Pastor Matthew. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I don't know where you are, but uh, I know that Christmas brings out a lot of tension in atheists. Brings out a lot of tension in Satanists. But for the Christian, it is a time of the year when once again we marvel that God would send his son to be born as a baby into this world of darkness and sin. To bring hope and salvation. So can I invite you to look with me at this story again. Open up to Matthew chapter 2. I'm pretty sure a lot of you didn't probably bring your Bible. That's all right. There's a Bible in front of you. It's, I think, blue. I think it's page 807, right around there. But if you could all open up, could you get the Bible open? And let's just follow the words. Let's follow the story. And let's see what the Lord might want to speak to you about today. Matthew chapter 2 opens up verses 1 and 2, and it goes like this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So the world at the time of Christ's birth, and I don't know if you know this, are you a historian? I love history. Maybe you don't, but you might find this interesting. The world when Christ was born, it was abuzz with the sense that there was going to be imminent global change. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm going to read to you a couple quotes. All over the world, there is this sense that something is about to change 
over the entire human civilization. There was an anticipation, and I want you to hear this. Now listen to this, because really this is the power of the story of Christ's birth. All of that sense of imminent change, it all centered on Judea, the southern region of the Jewish people. Now let me read to you two quotes from a Roman philosopher, historian, that lived this, at this time. His name is Suetonius, and he wrote this. There had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. We're talking about secular people here. We're not talking about a Christian. We're not talking about a church person. We're not talking about a Jewish person. Another historian wrote this. There was a firm persuasion that at this very time, this very time being the birth of Christ, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. So all over the world was this buzz, was this excitement. Something's about to change. And at that time, a lot more than today, because we live in the day of science and reason. All of these advancements... But in that day, the movements of the stars and these natural phenomenon were thought to be divine communications. So listen, if you were alive then and an asteroid fell out of the sky onto your head, you would have said that was a message from the gods. I don't think you would have said that for very long. When a bright star would appear in the ancient world in the night sky or when a comet would streak across the sky, that was considered to them a divine message that a significant person was born. This is true for the Greeks. This is true for the Romans, the Parthians, the Jewish people. Listen, everybody was looking at these natural phenomenon as being some way of divining what God or their gods were doing. So these wise men from the east, a group of very high-ranking priest scholars from Parthia, where modern-day Iraq and western Iran is, these wise men from that region see this star appear, and they begin a journey all the way from that region, hundreds, probably maybe even a thousand miles westward and down all the way to Jerusalem and Judea. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, and Pastor Matthew did a really good job last week of explaining this, it doesn't tell us how many wise men there were in the group, but you do have legends, and they always sprang up around significant events. These legends grew to the point where there were considered to be three of them because there were three gifts given, and the legends even named them. You ready? One was Melchior, one was Casper, and the other was Balthazar. Melchior supposedly gave gold, Casper frankincense, Balthasar the myrrh. But the truth is, the Bible really doesn't tell us how many there were. We don't know who gave what. So we don't really need to try to read into the text. Just they traveled to Jerusalem, and when they got there, they encountered a wicked, cruel tyrant in Israel, Herod the king. Now listen, you're going to be very hard-pressed to find a greater contrast between Herod and the true king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. You're not going to find, I don't think, much of a greater contrast anywhere. The birth of Christ into the world at that time, kind of eerily similar 
to the opening line of Charles Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities. You remember that, right? If you've read it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's really what you have in Matthew chapter 2. God born into flesh, come to redeem the world is certainly the best of times. But it was the worst of times in Israel because, number one, they're in bondage to the Roman Empire. They're not a free people. And Rome had made Herod a half-Jew, half-Idumean. He made him king of the Jews. And Herod was an insanely suspicious and jealous ruler. When he suspected someone of being a rival to his power, he just simply eliminated the person. He murdered his wife, Miriam. His wife's mother, and Pastor Matthew mentioned it last week, objected to that, so he murdered her too. He had three of his sons killed. You know what the Roman Emperor Augustus said of Herod, the king of the Jews? I'm going to quote him. He said, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. You've got a wicked, cruel tyrant. You know, he was 70 years old. He knew he was going to die soon. He gave an order that upon his death, they were to round up the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem, put them all into an arena, and execute them when he died. Do you know why he wanted to do that? Why he gave that decree? It was simply because he knew no one was going to mourn his death. So he determined to guarantee that tears and cries would be shed and heard on that day. Thankfully, that order was never carried out, but his most terrible order was to come in Matthew chapter 2. You're going to see it at the end. When he killed, he gave an order that all male children two years old and younger were to be killed in Bethlehem, listen, and the surrounding regions, not just Bethlehem. He wanted to cut off the threat to his throne. So does this help you understand? I'm trying to give you a little bit more of a, a, I don't know, maybe a biographical sketch of Herod. So that you can get inside and understand. This is a really wicked man, and he's in contrast to this incredible Christ child, the king. So maybe you understand the force now of verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2. Can you look at that? When he heard the message, Herod heard the message of the wise men, he was troubled. You know what that word means in the Greek, troubled? It means, well, it was a word that they used for boiling water or white rapid water in a river. He was incredibly agitated, angry, determined to get rid of this threat. And all the people were troubled. Lots of reasons for that. But this buzz of imminent change, is this the portent of it? Is this the omen of it? Is this the beginning of it? So Herod tries to deceive the wise men. He asks them to tell him when they find the child. He wants to worship him, he says, while all the while he has plans to kill him. Now in my office, there is a beautiful painting by Pat Millen from our church. She paints often in the style, and by the way, there's filmmaking in this style. Uh, you've heard of the film Sin City. This was made in this style. It's called Caroscuro. And it uses light and it uses darkness to vividly bring out the beauty of an object or a person. It's, it's usually got a very dark background, and then the light shines where the artist or the filmmaker wants your eyes to go. Pat is really, really good at this. 
What you're seeing is the painting that she gave to me. It's beautiful. And here we've got Herod. It's almost like the way that Matthew writes his gospel. You've got Herod providing the very dark backdrop. And then Matthew, the gospel writer, employs light of the appearing star to bring the wise men to the child Jesus. And we see the beauty of his glory. I mean, it's really against the backdrop of Rome, against the backdrop of Herod. Here, all of a sudden, we see this incredibly brilliant worship to this Christ child. It's beautiful in its contrast. We read in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Can I suggest very simply... This is the Shekinah glory of God. It's a very personal glory. It's its own radiance. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, some of you have probably already begun to notice that there aren't any points. There's no outlines today. Now, some of you, you don't even know how to listen without an outline. You're kind of paralyzed right now. Where was point number one? Is the pastor going to give it? What we're doing is we're following the sermon narratively. So there's not going to be a point one, two, and three. There's simply going to be a story that I'm just telling you. I'm repeating it. You've heard it many times, but I want you to hear it freshly. And many who worship, and probably even some that are right here, in fact, I know a lot in our church, are coming from a church background where Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been elevated to divine status, worthy of worship. If you'd like a theological term for churches that believe that, she is a co-redemptrix. In other words, Jesus himself is not enough to redeem you. It must be faith in Jesus and praying to Mary. She assists her son in the salvation. Well, that's not what we believe, but that's certainly, I'm sure, some of your backgrounds. In fact, while the Bible honors Mary, nowhere... Now listen, I want you to hear this because I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm trying to be actually um, using clarification here. Mary's nowhere in the Bible worshipped. She's not anywhere in the Bible held up as sinless. Nowhere is she considered divine by the biblical writers. And it's important then to notice when you see this scene of the wise men coming into this home that they saw the child first. That's where their eyes go first. And then they see Mary. Follow the text, you'll see it. Then they see Mary. And then they immediately, I want you to hear this, they immediately fall down to worship who? Jesus, not Mary. What a wonderful lady. What a woman deserving of honor, heroic to the extreme, but not worthy to be worshipped. Only God himself is worthy to be worshipped. But all of a sudden, we're beginning to see the Parthian people's customs when they would appear before a great person. And let me tell you this, the custom of the Parthians, this is where these men were from, the wise men, it was to salute a person with the same rank and then a kiss on the lips. So all of us, let's just settle this right now. Yes, I'm, I don't know, four feet up on a platform. That doesn't elevate me above you. It's really just so you can all see me. 
It has no bearing on me being greater than you. We're absolutely level before the Lord. I have no greater access to God than you do. You have the same word of God. If you're a Christian, you have the same spirit of God living in you that I do. I have no privilege that you have, that you don't have. And it works the other way as well. So really, if you're going to greet me the way the Parthians would, it wouldn't be the other ones I'm about to tell you. It would be a salute and, please don't do this, kiss on the lips. Let's just blow the kisses if you want to do that. I'm just telling you how they would greet someone on the same rank. But when the difference of rank was slight, it wasn't a kiss on the lips, it was a kiss on the cheek. However, let me give you a third one. When the difference of rank was severe, when it was great, the inferior person would fall on his or her knees, touch the forehead to the ground, throwing kisses at the same time toward the superior until the superior got up and lifted you up. That's how they would greet someone of much greater rank. And this is the greeting we see. There's a reason the Bible is so descriptive. And going into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fall, fell down and worshiped him. This is the reaction of the wise men. They're falling down before the king. Now, the wise men were so powerful that no man, did you know this, by the way? I can't remember if Pastor Matthew mentioned this. And if he didn't, well, here's a little tidbit. If he did, you might have forgotten it like you do with most of our sermons. But the wise men were so powerful that no one ever took the throne in the Parthian Empire without their approval. Did you know that? That's why they're called kingmakers. They're eastern kingmakers. They have come to Bethlehem to recognize the one that is born to be king. They are recognizing the king of all kings. Look at verse 11 again. They fell down and worshipped him, then opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now last week you heard and it was explained that the gift of gold, very appropriate, perfect gift for honoring one who is a king. And giving the gold, they acknowledged the Christ child. He's two years old, likely right around there at this point. He's not a baby. He's a toddler. Can you imagine these wise men, powerful kingmakers, bowing down to a two-year-old boy? They're acknowledging him as the one that's in authority over them to whom all of their possessions, all of their motivations, all of their service belongs. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, it's really easy to scrub free the passion and the emotion and the wonder in this when you read it. But when you really get into text behind and into the culture, this is amazing. It's the symbolic meaning of gold that moves us to come to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. By the way, we are commanded, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Kyrios in the Greek. It is to come to Christ and surrender to lay down your demands, your self-will. Why I told you the Greek word? Because that was a famous song back in the 80s. It is to come to Christ and surrender, but you may not yet perfectly understand all that it entails to come to Christ as your Lord, but you must surrender before him. Listen, you'll never be able to come to Christ and say to him, 
I would want your salvation, but I want to keep the reins of my life. He's going to tell you you're not yet ready. If you're going to come to Christ for salvation, it is to lay down everything for him. It is to recognize that he has the right to rule you. And you offer him the gold of your worship symbolically as you recognize his authority and his right to rule. You know, a fun little story about this. Admiral Horatio Nelson, he was the great leader of the Royal Navy. He was really known for his kindness and his courtesy, even with his enemies that he defeated. There was one vanquished admiral who knew this very, very well about Admiral Nelson. And he was brought onto Nelson's ship after his ship was defeated and his soldiers were defeated. And when he got onto the planks of that ship, the deck of that ship, he strode over to Admiral Nelson with hand outstretched as his equal. And Nelson's hand stayed by his side and he said to the man, Your sword first, sir, and then your hand. See, it's the same with Christ. Before you can be his friend, you must first submit to his lordship. And the wise men know this. They fall down before the Christ child and they recognize him as their king. Now, all I've done so far in 21 minutes is really pretty much take you back through the story that you heard last week. Maybe a couple little tidbits of information different. But I just brought you up to where it ended last week. And now we begin the second gift. What about frankincense? What do you know about that? Well, if you like the Christmas classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Do you remember George Bailey? When he's beginning his spiral down into depression. He's got a daughter upstairs, seriously sick. Another one down in the living room playing Hark the Herald Angels Sing on the piano over and over. And then his son comes bounding into the room and he asks him how to spell frankincense. That might have been, if you've seen the movie, the first time, virtually only time, other than at church, that you ever hear about it. So you've all likely heard of it. Right now, by the way, it's one of the hottest selling essential oils on the market. A couple years ago, it was number four. It might have moved up. Frankincense oil. Why is it so hot selling? Why? Because it, it's promising to improve your mood. I've got a couple bio, bottles of it that I keep for some of you. <laughs> it reduces stress as well as swelling, but that's not all. It fights infections and digestion. It aids it and it fades your scars and heals your wounds. And maybe even, they're trying to really diligently research this, it might even prevent some forms of cancer. But way before these modern claims and mail-order availability, frankincense was one of the most coveted and expensive commodities. You think the gold was pricey? This was actually pricier. Let's go a little background on it, just for fun facts. It comes from the Boswellia trees, mainly, that grows primarily in southern Arabia, the Horn of Africa. Listen, this is big business. They've got frankincense farmers. Here's how they get the oil. They slash the bark. They call it striping. 
And then when they do that, it slowly begins to seep out of that wound in the tree. And it's called resin. And that resin bleeds out. And then they take a chisel and they scrape it onto a wooden board or a flat stone to dry in the sun. And when it dries, it hardens into this very brittle resin. And these resins are called tears. And they're mostly used by priests back in the Old Testament and New Testament. Along with the sacrifices offered to God. What you do is you crush it and then you burn it. And when you burn it, it releases its smell. And it is absolutely beautiful. It was expensive. Only the purest sap from the first harvest was used in the temple of God. The word frank, by the way, is French, old French, for pure. So frankincense is pure Incense. And the symbolic connection of this gift to the wise men was that they're declaring, you ready? This is actually the main part of the message. They're declaring that this Christ child is divine, that he's God. As one great scholar and early church father once said, his name was Origen, he, I'm quoting him, this is the gift to God, frankincense. Now, we don't know if the wise men really recognized Christ as God. We really don't know that. It would seem that they might have, but their gift indicates that they probably did. And even the old, even the pagan Roman Empire had a connection between frankincense and the worship of God. Now, listen to this. This is incredible. I'm going to give you a guy's name that is so freakishly weird that you probably will never forget it. He was an early church father that was martyred for his faith. His name was Polycarp. Odd name, Polycarp. You know how he was martyred? You know why, I guess I should say, he was martyred? Because the Roman Empire had a custom. They were the most religiously tolerant empire that, the, that human history has ever known. Did you know that about the Romans? I'm not even making that up. They were just incredibly religiously tolerant. People could worship the God of their choice. They could build temples to whatever deity they pleased. When Rome would defeat a nation or a people, they would allow that people to, to, to maintain their religious beliefs, to remain faith, faithful to that God or goddess. They would never worship them to, they would never fo force them to worship the same gods as all the rest of the Romans. However, their benevolence was given to everyone but to Christians. Why? Well, here's what Rome could not tolerate, and you're going to find an eerie, eerie similarity to the present-day university. They could not tolerate any people group that would not allow other religions. Their faith of the early church, our forefathers and foremothers, rested in Christ alone. And they would not compromise their faith. They would not become pluralistic. Now, pluralism is simply this. It's a fun little 50-cent word. All it means is you want to get to the top of the mountain. There's a lot of different paths to get there. It doesn't matter which path you're on. They're always going to get to the top. That's pluralism. So you could be of the Baha'i faith. You could be of the Satanist club. You could be a Muslim or a Christian. It really doesn't matter to a pluralistic believer. Our present-day university, it's all going to get to the top. The Christian would not believe that. You should not believe that. By Christ's own claims, I am the gate, 
I am the way, the truth, and light. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's quite exclusive. And if you're not tolerant to other faiths, and you are exclusive like the Christian message is, you're going to be hated. And they certainly were hated. So the Romans developed a little test for you. Now I want you to imagine that you're alive in 45 A.D. When this test was in vogue, even all the way to the mid-200s, I believe, A.D., right around there when this test was still in vogue. And they had a little test, and they would give you an opportunity to, to spare your life. All you have to do is take a little bit of this incense, this frankincense, Take a pinch of it, put it over a flame that was burning in the presence of a picture of the emperor sitting on the Roman throne, and offer it into that flame as an offering to the Roman god, whatever the emperor's name was. And if you would do that as a Christian, then you would save your life. You remember Polycarp? Polycarp said, I won't do that. I worship only one god. And hundreds and thousands of Christians refused to pinch the incense into the flames and they were killed for it. See, even the Romans, in all of their religious pluralism, understood that incense was a symbol to the God. See, if the wise men brought camel loads of gold, then the child of Mary would be recognized as the king born to rule an earthly throne. But with this second gift of frankincense, it is unmistakable this Christ child was not only the king of all kings, he's the one over all. He is ruling not an earthly throne, he is ruling the throne of heaven. And we come to Christ, Christian. With the frankincense of our worship and we're coming to the one who is our God. We're just saying that this, just a while ago. And Jesus Christ was not just a man. He was and is God born into flesh, born into humility. He came to dwell among the humanity that he loves. And as we see the wise men offering frankincense, we see ourselves offering to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our truest Offering of worship. That he is the very God who has come in the flesh to be with us. Now I'm almost done. But I would like the opportunity to just climb out of the story a little bit. And just speak more directly to you. Now I don't know where you are spiritually. I really have no idea. I know where I am. But I'm not God. I cannot read your heart. I can hear you when you tell me and you have a testimony of faith. And I can have assurance of that. Or I can hear you when you tell me that, you know, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe. But I want to listen. I want to hear. I want to investigate. So I don't know where you are. So I'd like to just maybe take a few moments and talk to you personally. Jesus has no effect in your life if you only view him as a great man. He will have no impact in your life if he is only the man upstairs. 
He will have no redeeming salvific or salvation power over your life if you will not come to him in trust. And I would like to just explain what that means for just a couple minutes because it's really much more simple than I think most people make it to be. You know, you trust all the time. I think all of you sat down on this pew and not one of you, I bet, I don't know, I don't think any of you, I didn't see anybody investigate to see if the pew is going to hold you up to put a little of your weight on it first and then slowly, when you gain more confidence, settle the rest of your weight. You had faith. It was so subliminally unconscious, you didn't even think about it. Do you know that's where faith is for me? With Jesus? It's so part of the warp and woof of me that I don't even wonder, will Christ bear the weight of my soul? I just believe he will. And nobody convinced me, to be honest with you. Yeah, my mom beautifully told me about Jesus when I came to her almost five years old, my simple little elementary mind. But you know what? That really concretized. It came solid to me after I sojourned into the world for a little bit and realized how empty it left me. And all that drinking, all that partying, all that that I did, I couldn't believe that I kept waking up with a hangover but feeling my soul had just drained a little bit more. And I thought, I thought this was supposed to make, make me happy. I was absolutely miserable doing everything that the world said you should do if you want to be happy. It just wasn't making me happy. In fact, it drained me of every bit of joy I had until I finally did what I knew I should have done, and that is turned back to Christ and walk with him. And to this point, I don't sit down on the pew of Christ wondering if he'll support my weight. It's faith. I just believe he will. And I think I would ask you to perhaps look into your own heart just for a moment. Do you believe that Jesus can support the weight of your soul? That if you cry out to him, with, well, I'm sure at some level you're, you're realizing already, if you're not a Christian, this gnawing emptiness. You've got to try something new constantly, whether it's sex or a new relationship or more money or drugs or drinking. And everything seems to work for a little bit and then it just drains out the bottom. And before you... You know it, you're back to empty again. So you're looking for your next thing. Listen, you're never going to find an end to that cycle. You won't find it. So it's finally to the end of that that you realize, wait a minute, there must be a better way. I did not get on this planet to live this empty life. Why do I live? You live to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is why he came. This is why he was born into human flesh. And the moment that you could begin believing that, the moment you could begin trusting that, and it may not be immediate for you. It may not be like a light switch off today and then all of a sudden on. It might be a gradual process for you. But as you begin to believe and you begin to trust and you begin to realize, wait a minute, I am a sinner. That's put a gap between me and God. And it's not that I've just done things wrong. I'm just rebellious against God. I don't want God telling me how to live. 
And the moment you realize that and you realize the emptiness that it's led you to, all of a sudden you can lay down your arms. Because he won't put his hand out to you until you drop the sword. That's the beginning of faith. That's the beginning of realizing he's the Lord. You're not. You're not on equal footing. He is ever above you. The moment you realize that and your soul is okay with that is the beginning of faith being ignited in you. And you realize all of that sin, all of that junk that I have done in that cosmic rebellion that I have had against God, my creator. I don't want it anymore. And God, I'm asking you that you will pardon me, that you will forgive me, that you will drop the charges. You know what? You will never, listen, please hear me. You will never, ever have to ask that twice. God will drop them before you finish asking. And he will invite you into life. And he will invite himself into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to start teaching you how to live. And all of a sudden, your deadened conscience is going to come alive. And you're going to start feeling bad when you do things that defy God. And that bad feeling is a gift from God to lead you away from what's going to strip you of life again back to the one that's going to give you life. And that conscience is energized by the Spirit of God. And it is corrected by the Word of God. And as you begin to love God's Word, and you begin studying it and learning about who God is all of a sudden your total life comes alive why because you put your soul's weight on this christ child that the wise men bowed down to and threw their gold at him and pinched their frankincense at him because they recognize that he is the lord of all and he is god of all that's an amazing child called Jesus Christ. Can I leave you with this? If you do that, and let me tell you, there is no magical prayer. If there was, I would give it to you. How do you get saved? Well, you got to read that. No, you don't. Man, let me tell you what. I have four children. All but one is an adult now. The other one thinks that he is. But when they were all young... Man, all they had to do was lift their hands up. There was no hesitation. I bent down and picked them up. You don't need a formula prayer. You just need to understand Jesus is your Lord. You're a sinner. He came to get rid of your sin by dying on that cross. And he rose to life and he is inviting you to go with him. Where you can live for eternity. You believe that, your soul will be at home. It will be at rest. Amen? Amen? Now let me finish this really quickly. One more minute. Maybe three. Do you want to experience the joy of the wise men? I mean, look how they worship. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Well, then worship Christ. Worship exceedingly. Worship sacrificially. Worship appropriately during this Advent season and all year. He's your king. He is your God. And next week, we're going to see one more joyful aspect of the Christ child. You know, you're going to be flying around this week. You're going to be flying around this month. Office parties, 
Christmas choruses, baking, traveling, getting ready to receive family, church events. You're, you're going to have a blur of a month. So can I leave you with this? Can you all try to do this? At least try. Stop and breathe each day. Just determine. I'm going to make a portion of every single day. I'm going to stop. I'm going to breathe. And during that breathing, you're going to worship. You're going to walk back into the house that the wise men entered. And you're going to see that two-year-old little Christ child. And fall on your face, whether it's literally or, or symbolically, and present to him your offering of praise that is fit for your king, fit for your God. Love him, serve him, adore him. And you know what? Best of all, perhaps, tell somebody about the Christ child. Amen? Let's pray.